Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 190, The Early Stages of the First Balkan War. As always, I want to start by thanking patrons. First, thanks to Ivailo Mito for increasing his support, to Alex Yosifov and to Silky Noir for becoming patrons, and to Ross Stevens for making a donation. Big thank you to all of you, and with that, let's get into it. Now, before the recap episodes, we finished up with essentially the lead-up to the First Balkan War in October of 1912, Although, as a note, I think I got some of the dates wrong in that. It gets very confusing with the old calendar, the new calendar, and some different sources give different dates and things. But I think from here on out, I've kind of sorted everything. But just as a small note. But before we jump straight into the conflict itself, I wanted to spend most of this episode talking a bit about how all the societies involved have kind of greeted the announcement, how they have prepared, and just to get a feel for the players. Uh, So, as we all know, the Balkan states are generally very enthusiastic about this war, as the governments there have actually been forced to try to kind of tamp down that enthusiasm all through the summer of 1912 because they weren't ready to fight the Ottomans just yet. Historian Richard C. Hall, in his book on the Balkan Wars, writes how, quote, There was little enthusiasm for the war on the Ottoman side. Some students at the University of Constantinople demonstrated in favor of a war with the Balkan states. Otherwise, the Ottoman capital remained complacent about the prospect of war. The recent wars in Yemen and North Africa had blunted much patriotic enthusiasm. End quote. But what about the military plan for this war? Now, I'll include a couple maps on the website, which, trust me, will make all this much easier to follow. As usual, when we're talking about an actual war, it's very hard to picture this stuff in your head, so I highly recommend clicking on the link to the blog post in the description of this episode and looking at those maps. Now, from the Bulgarian perspective, there were two main fronts. The first was through Thrace, what's now kind of the European part of Turkey, leading towards Constantinople, and the other was in Macedonia, which includes both kind of the direction heading towards Ohrid and the direction down to Thessaloniki. Of course, there's also the Rodopi territories down to the Aegean Sea, but that was a much more kind of tertiary front. Now, in meetings before the war, Bulgaria and Serbia had discussed how their forces should be used. Serbia wanted Bulgaria to commit a substantial portion of its units to the Macedonian front, while the Bulgarian army argued that the decisive front of the war would be in Thrace. Now, before I dive into these numbers, I'll note that, again, I found some wildly divergent information and some sources, so take all these with a bit of a grain of salt, but Still, they give you a general idea of the numbers we're talking about. Now, Bulgaria's army had about 366,000 men, making up about half the total forces of the Balkan League. Those forces were divided into three main armies, with the first and third being dedicated to Thrace and the second focusing on Macedonia. Now, this will change as the war progresses, but that just gives you a general idea. But despite that kind of implying that everyone's divided into thirds, 
uh, way more than two thirds of the Bulgarian forces will be dedicated to the Thracian front with just a few divisions going towards Macedonia and south to the Rudopi. Now, over the course of the war, Bulgaria will ultimately call up about 600,000 men or about 12% of its total population or about 25% of its men. So yeah, you imagine, I mean, you look at other wars throughout history, 25% of the male population uh, at arms is an enormous number. Uh, you just think about, you know, population distributions and how much of the population are too young or too old to really fight. That is a huge portion of the, you know, fighting age men. Now, by contrast, the Serbian army had about 255,000 men divided into three armies, though this would eventually reach about 400,000 or about 14% of its population, so also a very high number. The Greek army had only about 110,000 men divided into two armies, and this would eventually reach 150,000 or about 3% of its population. So this is in part because the Greek army was much smaller and much weaker. The Greeks had a much larger navy, but just overall, yeah, there weren't as many kind of resources and investments in their army, so there were much fewer men-at-arms. Lastly, Montenegro had about 55,000 soldiers. All of this led to Professor Wolfgang Hopkin to write that, quote, the Balkan Wars were the first to be fought as a true levée en masse in Europe, end quote. Now, if you're not familiar, levée en masse is a obviously French expression coined during the Napoleonic Wars to refer to kind of mass conscription, you know, sort of mass mobilization of the population for the purpose of fighting a war. But, you know, even though that term was developed to describe the, you know, Napoleon's tactic of, you know, drawing from the French population to create armies that were of a completely different scale than had ever seen before, been seen before in Europe, despite that, the numbers we see in the Balkan Wars by the Balkan states very much exceed what Napoleonic France managed. Thus, his his sort of uh, argument that this is truly the first time a European state has actually, you know, mobilized virtually its entire male population capable of fighting. It's never happened before. Now, the Ottomans were, for their part, in a very difficult and different position because, recall, they're still technically at war with Italy, even though that's winding down and that war will end during the Balkan Wars. Um, But still, they're still technically at war, meaning many of their troops are still engaged uh, and also just that their empire is much larger. So a lot of their troops are scattered in all these places and it's very difficult with their logistics to move them. Now, the Ottoman plan for war with the Balkan states anticipated mobilizing over 800,000 troops. However, at the start of the war, only 290,000 were ready, 175,000 in Macedonia and 115,000 in Thrace. So it should be obvious that despite the fact that the Ottoman Empire has a much larger population, the number of troops that they can muster is markedly smaller than those that the Balkan states can at the beginning of the war. And it's going to be much easier for the Balkan states to mobilize their populations because the Balkan states are much smaller. The distances that have to be covered uh, are much smaller. And as we'll discuss, the Ottomans will need to transport all their troops to the front over water, whether that's over the Bosphorus Strait or through the Aegean. Someone's going to have to cross a body of water, which makes all this much more difficult. So in Macedonia, 
its 175 Ottomans facing about 400,000 Balkan League troops, while in Thrace, 115,000 Ottomans face around 300,000 Bulgarians. So in both cases, the the kind of Balkan forces have little less than a three to one advantage, but that's a significant advantage. In addition, as I noted, the Ottoman transportation network was quite poor, so typically the most efficient way to transport soldiers was by sea. However, as we'll discuss quite a bit, the Greek navy was determined to make this extremely dangerous, if not outright impossible. So, together the Balkan League had more than double the total number of soldiers of the Ottomans, despite the Ottoman Empire being ten times their size in terms of land, and double their combined population. Now, as we've seen throughout the episode since Bulgaria's partial independence in 1879, Bulgaria has invested massively in its army. And by this moment, those investments are showing. Again, you'll recall that you know, Bulgaria has pretty consistently spent about one-third of the national budget on the army. And, you know, you think about uh, now, you know, a country even today spending a third of its budget on its army is not very common. As a result, Bulgaria's military was relatively modern, well-trained, and large. Serbia's army had improved dramatically since losing to Bulgaria in 1885. Obviously, there were a lot of lessons learned there. Like Bulgaria, Serbia had invested heavily in modern equipment, officer training, and the creation of a permanent quality standing army, and even had done large-scale maneuvers to provide you know, high-quality training. However, despite all the preparation for this movement, Serbia was still generally unprepared for anything other than a fairly short war. In fact, all the Balkan states had a relatively limited number of ammunition or quantity of ammunition for their most modern weapons. So although all the Balkan states had been preparing for this war for basically decades and had these very large armies, the contrasting reality was that none of them was truly prepared for a protracted conflict. And as I'll discuss later, that will play into kind of how they approach the war. Now, next we get to Greece's army. As I've kind of alluded to, it was in a far worse state than its neighbors. Its army had largely been under the command of local warlords for much of the 19th century, and it had introduced some limited conscription with a lot of exceptions, years later than Bulgaria and Serbia had. Still, it had managed to implement some of its own reforms in recent years, but its military remained quite behind that of its neighbors in terms of quality. Now, Obviously, what Greece did have was a small but quite impressive and modern navy, and we'll get to see exactly what that navy is capable of. In fact, the Greek ambassador to Bulgaria, speaking with uh, Prime Minister Geshov, said that Greece could provide 600,000 men. Now, the Bulgarians like laughed at this, like, what are you talking about? No, you can't. They knew full well that the Greek army was nowhere near that size. Huh. But the ambassador explained, quote, we can place an army of 200,000 men in the field, and then our fleet will stop about 400,000 men being landed by Turkey upon the southern coast of Thrace and Macedonia. End quote. As we'll learn about, half of that was correct, but that's getting into the future. Montenegro's army was sadly still stuck in another era, with many informal structures and relatively poor discipline. So, by contrast, 
Foreign observers praised Bulgaria and Serbia for having created modern militaries in a very short period of time. And essentially the, the structures, the command structures, how those militaries function is virtually identical to what you would see in Western Europe. But no surprise, the price has been high. As we've seen, the fact that nearly none of the modern equipment that those armies needed could be produced locally meant that all those fancy rifles and artillery pieces and even airplanes and things, nearly all of that stuff had to be purchased from abroad, usually at fairly high cost, usually from Germany or France. They were the two kind of big producers of things like artillery. And we'll see that that plays into the Balkan Wars as well. Now, in general, the armies of Greece, Serbia, and Bulgaria were similarly structured and, quote, perceived that the often illiterate peasant infantrymen, indoctrinated to some degree with the appropriate nationalist ideology, was the basis for their military posture, end quote. That's from Hall, who notes that minorities like Roma were not expected to serve in any of the national armies, making them generally ethnically homogenous. But, again, to emphasize his point, a lot of the peasants who made up the infantry, who made up the vast majority of their soldiers, were illiterate, and the belief was that sort of spirit, you know, the, the spirit of the bayonet, the spirit of, you know, the national goals will be what kind of brings higher morale and what will bring victory. Hall then notes that, quote, those enlisted personnel of the particular country, whether it Bulgaria, Greece, or Serbia, replete with references to medieval glories. Bulgarians learned of the empires of Tsar Simeon. Greeks learned about Emperor Basil II, known as the Bulgar Slayer. And the Montenegrins and Serbs learned about Stefan Dushan. End quote. Now, being a listener to this podcast, presumably you've heard of all those people, you know all those references. But also, if you've seen, you know, let's say either version of, either movie version of All Quiet on the Western Front, you can recall those critical early scenes of school teachers sort of whipping young men into a nationalistic frenzy at the prospect of obtaining glory for the nation and themselves on the battlefield. And essentially many in these Balkan armies, both in school and in the army, experienced something similar. So thinking about what these societies looked like, Leon Trotsky, who was actually in Belgrade at the time, gives us a, an interesting little insight into what Belgrade was like in the days before the war began. He wrote that, quote, it has a special air about it, on the alert like a military camp. Everyone and everything is subordinated to the demands of the mobilization. The streets are full of mobilized men, and men about to be mobilized. The shops are empty. Industry is at a standstill, apart from the branch that serves the needs of mobilization in the coming war. For ten days already, railway travel has been suspended in Serbia. The trains carry only soldiers and war materials. If Belgrade is an armed camp, the railway station is at the heart of the camp. Military authority reigns there exclusively. End quote. So, again, getting back to that notion that the Balkan states are the first true example of levée en masse. I mean, the entire society of particularly Bulgaria and Serbia, uh, to maybe a lesser extent Greece and even a lesser extent Montenegro, is fully mobilized and fully focused on the goal of winning this war. Now, contrasting what the Balkan armies were like, the Ottoman army was in the middle of German-led military reforms, 
and was generally viewed pretty negatively by foreign observers. Now, they had made the baffling decision to reduce the size of their army in the previous summer. Uh, For some reason, the Young Turks, uh, the Committee for Union and Progress, decided that the army should be smaller just at this moment. And I'll also note that the Balkan states were also employing irregular units with varying level of connection and control from the official armies. So if you think about Macedonia, a lot of the Cheti that we've seen, you know, Serbian, Greek, and Bulgarian, but particularly Bulgarian, they simply joined the operations and started to help. And I'll talk more about that as we get into the war. Next, all sides faced major logistical challenges. Uh, as rail networks were still fairly limited and vehicle transportation was rare. You know, cars and trucks exist, but not a lot of them, particularly in the Balkans. As a result, most soldiers still traveled to the battlefields on foot or in carts pulled by donkeys or horses. But again, it was much easier for the Balkan states because they were smaller and much closer to the battlefields than most of the Ottoman Empire. Another area where all sides were quite unprepared for war was in medicine. Serbia, for example, had about a quarter the number of doctors it should have had to handle the casualties it could expect from the war. Bulgaria, by contrast, had only 600 doctors to treat its hundreds of thousands of soldiers. The result would be that many wounded men who should have ended up living died of their wounds because proper treatment was unavailable or inaccessible. Historian Al-Mahanig writes how, at the outbreak of war, quote, all European great powers exercised a policy of wait and see, mainly expecting the Ottoman Empire to resist the attack. The central powers declared their interest in the integrity of the Ottoman Empire, but refused any military involvement, end quote. So, essentially, many of the great powers declared that they supported the territorial status quo at the end of the war. But, That didn't necessarily mean they were against, you know, Greece, Serbia, or Bulgaria taking more land because they largely assumed the Ottomans would win. And so this declaration largely meant that the great powers didn't want the Ottomans to acquire more land when they, according to these people, inevitably won. This was in part based on the reality that, you know, it's easy to forget this, but the Ottomans had won a quick and decisive victory against Greece in 1897. They had performed far better than expected against the Russians in 1877 and 1878. Remember the siege of Pleven and all those battles uh, that Bulgarians helped in between the Russians and the Ottomans. The Ottomans really outperformed expectations. And the loss to Italy, it was easy to kind of throw that away because, as we know, the Ottomans couldn't really even get their army to Libya. I mean, there there wasn't an easy way for the Italians and the uh, Ottomans to sort of fight head-on. It was mostly about their navies, and the Ottoman navy was inferior. So, yeah, the, the, the loss to Italy didn't seem to have a lot of implications for how the Ottomans might fight this war. So, all that is to say, the base assumption is that the Ottomans are punching above their weight militarily. Now, as we know, Germany is, at this point, somewhat sympathetic to the Balkan states. You know, they're, they're helping the Ottomans uh, expand and things, but they're sympathetic. Austria-Hungary and Italy both desperately want Serbia to not gain access to the sea because, you know, they, the, they're the two powers that control the Adriatic and they don't want a third power butting in. This is why the Austrians 
have supported the idea of an independent Albania, the Italians as well, to basically help prevent Serbian expansion. As usual, when the great powers support the national aspirations of one of the Balkan states, it's never for any real interest of the people living there, it's for their own interest. Here's a classic example. Now, Austria-Hungary also wanted to ensure that if Bulgaria grows, that Romania gets more territory as well, because at this point, Romania is an Austro-Hungarian ally, and yeah, they want to kind of maintain some balance in there. So this de facto meant that the Austrians felt that Romania should obtain southern Dobruja if the Bulgarians gain territory, but no one's kind of talking openly about this, but it's there kind of below the surface. Now, the Bulgarians working to establish a legal framework for the conflict don't know this. Uh, remember, they've talked to Romania. They, they, there have been some back and forth there, and the Romanians haven't really shown any interest. So this belief that Romania should be compensated has yet to be communicated clearly to Bulgaria, but it's there. Statelova's biography of Ivan Geshov notes that, quote, The aspect of the treaties and conventions that were unfavorable to Bulgaria were quickly evident. Sofia was obligated to send in more troops than Serbia and Greece combined, and the Bulgarian army had to face a direct assault of Turkish forces in the Thracian theater, where the outcome of the war would supposedly be decided. The Serbian and Greek troops were to focus on Macedonia, far from the Ottoman center. Only one Bulgarian detachment would be there, the 7th Rila Division, under Serbian command. Smaller Bulgarian units were to advance through the Rudolps and Aegean Thrace, but these details gave the weaker allies an undisputed military and political advantage over Bulgaria, whose military was superior, end quote. She goes on to note that, quote, In these wartime conditions, Geshov had two main tasks, to maintain ties with the allies in the spirit of the treaties and to secure the intervention of the great powers for a quick conclusion to the war, given the change to the status quo. Geshov feared that the fighting would drag on and the Allies would become exhausted. The chief of staff of the Bulgarian army had the same fear. End quote. So, Thrace would be the most critical theater militarily, as only around 100 miles separated the Bulgarian border from the Ottoman capital of Constantinople. The terrain there is largely rolling hills, absent any... I mean, there's some natural defenses, there's some small rivers and streams and ridges, but nothing formidable meaning the Ottomans could only really rely on their fortifications at places like Lozengrad and Adrianople before a final defense line between the Black Sea and the Sea of Marmara, about 25 miles outside the capital. And as we'll see, you know, one of those main Ottoman fortifications has been modernized, that of Lozengrad. The other three main Ottoman forts in the area have not been modernized, so we'll have to see how they perform. So, the Ottomans had two strong points and one defensive line separating the Bulgarians from their capital. On the other hand, an Ottoman breakthrough there would give them easy access to the Bulgarian heartland. So, a general Bulgarian plan was to push aggressively in Thrace, force a decisive battle around Luluburgas, and then ask for Russian intervention to end the war before the Ottomans could bring in reinforcements from the rest of their empire. Interestingly, Serbian Cheti actually began operations against the Ottomans in Macedonia even in the two weeks before the war officially began, doing things like killing local police and officials. The Bulgarians and the Greeks also employed Cheti to aid in their army's activities. 
I was actually quite surprised to read that Sandansky's band actually decided to aid the Bulgarian division heading south along the Struma Valley towards Thessaloniki, despite Sandansky's ideological opposition to the war. Basically, he saw it as a bourgeois war and was appalled at the proposed division of Macedonia. Though Sandansky's group also did provide aid to civilian refugees. Also a quick note here that a lot of the kind of Bulgarian via Marocetti helped the Serbs because, you know, that obviously Macedonia was their base of operations and Macedonia was basically the Serbian theater of the war. So they helped out the Serbs. Now, on the day the war began, Bulgarian artillery officer Colonel Petas Tantilov wrote in his diary, quote, War. At last, the national desire is fulfilled. We must triumph. We must take revenge. We must unify Greater Bulgaria. End quote. Which gives you an idea of some of the kind of nationalistic framing and the, the feelings about the war that I mentioned earlier. Ottoman troops were themselves marching to the border with confidence despite poor training and a lack of weapons in many cases. The Ottoman war minister, Nizam Pasha, had actually given a speech to officers in which he urged them not to, quote, Forget to take your full dress uniforms, because you will need them for entry into Sofia two months from now. End quote. I feel like globally there should just be a ban on soldiers going to war with dress uniforms, because it just always seems like it's uh, yeah, a, a, pre a precursor to things not working out very well, but that aside. Overall, the feeling within the Ottoman Empire was quite different than that in the Balkan states. A French correspondent described a scene on one of Constantinople's main streets, writing, quote, There are impenetrable crowds of the cosmopolitan people. The cinemas are full. Cafes where orchestras play are packed, as if there's no war at all. Huge posters inviting people to the film Magda, Child of Love. Of course, the crowds include many Greeks. There are Italians, French, Montenegrins. The Greeks are quite open about what they think. If they see Turks going off to the front, they humiliate them by shouting, Zoa, Zoa, beasts, animals. Here in Istanbul, three quarters of the population are enemies of the Turks, end quote. Now, on the day the war began, Bulgarian troops crossed into Ottoman territory facing little opposition. They wanted the Ottomans to believe that they would focus their attention on the mighty fortress of Adrianople, manned by more than 50,000 Ottoman soldiers. In fact, the Bulgarian plan was to merely surround the fortress and bypass it by pushing aggressively in two thrusts before meeting for a decisive battle around the town of Luluburgas. To aid in that deception, Bulgarian command spoke freely with foreign journalists about their plan to strike hard at Adrianople. In Thrace, Bulgarian forces advanced without much trouble for really the first few days. Then, Still thinking the bulk of Bulgarian forces were in Macedonia and that therefore that the Bulgarians in Thrace were surely outnumbered, the Ottomans mounted a counterattack. This was envisioned by their military leaders as a chance to retake the initiative, but it also meant abandoning the overall Ottoman plan for the conflict, which was to hold defensive positions until reinforcements from Anatolia could arrive. So, instead, a haphazard and poorly planned attack took place all along the line, ensuring there was no concentration of force designed to break a single position, but instead a broad crashing of a wave against the Bulgarian rocks. The day after the attack, the first major operation of the war began with the fight for the fortress of Lozengrad. On October 9th and 10th, Bulgarian units fought with Ottoman forces, and as the Bulgarians advanced towards the fortress, 
The first assault on the evening of the 9th saw a Bulgarian infantry assault rush Ottoman positions in a heavy rainstorm, yelling Nanosh, or with the knife, the knife here being the bayonet. These attacks led to the Ottomans engaging in a disorderly retreat on the 10th, abandoning the trenches and prepared defenses that they otherwise could have relied on. As a result, Bulgarian forces occupied the Lozengrad fortress without resistance on the 11th, capturing important supplies like artillery and even airplanes in the process. Less than two weeks earlier, a German field marshal working to train the Ottoman army had proclaimed that, quote, Lozengrad is one of the best fortresses in the world. There is no need to strengthen it, as it is as unassailable as Gibraltar. It could only be stormed under two conditions. First, it must be besieged for three months. Secondly, the besieging army would have to be Prussian, end quote. But while fighting had gone on around the fortress, the fortress itself was taken basically without a shot fired. Now, of course, the French framed this as a victory of their artillery pieces over those provided to the Ottomans by the Germans. Remember, you know, Tsar Ferdinand got in that little spat with the German Kaiser and then decided to buy French artillery instead of German artillery. But yeah, this is a, a running theme about the Balkan Wars, that the, the great powers like to sort of take what conclusions are convenient for them. One Ottoman general later wrote, quote, Military history gives no other such example of a similar route beginning without cause. Without fighting, the Bulgarians achieved a great victory. Without having been pressured by the enemy, beaten only by the bad weather and the condition of the roads, the Turks fled as if they had suffered an irreparable disaster and lost one-third of their war materials. End quote. Another senior Ottoman military commander wrote how, quote, the causes of our defeat are to be found in our bad military organization and in the lack of discipline of our reservists. But the principal cause was the rain, which continued for a week, completely destroying the morale of our army, and for three days rendering impossible the roads and fields to our trains and artillery. End quote. A correspondent for a Czech newspaper described the scene that resulted, writing, quote, Only Dante could properly describe the road from Lozengrad. Only his dark genius could recreate all the horrors of the cold swamps out of which stuck the twisted and mutilated bodies of the fallen. Bizarre bulges in the slippery mud. A close look at them, and one may identify the features of distorted faces, broken skulls, convulsed hands, shattered teeth, fallen dead horses, and on both sides of the road, tens of thousands of shrapnel pieces marked Dusseldorf, Essen. End quote. After the success at Lozengrad, the Bulgarian government quietly abandoned its previous plan to seek intervention by the great powers. They now shared the Tsar's confidence in the ability of the army to win on its own. However, the Bulgarians also did not pursue the Ottomans as they fled beyond Lozengrad, giving the Ottomans the ability and time to regroup and reorganize along the Karagach River. It was still a triumphant victory and Bulgarian army morale soared. General Dmitriev later wrote at the moment, quote, We Bulgarians, here among the Stranja hills, after 500 years of slavery, for the first time aimed by ourselves at the power of the Turkish army, and achieved a decisive ascendancy for the further course of the war. End quote. But the loss of Lozengrad also meant that the fortress at Adrianople, with those 50,000 soldiers, was now effectively surrounded. The siege of Adrianople had begun. Meanwhile, 
These events had severely demoralized the Ottomans, with officers being keenly aware that the single best defensive fortification between the Bulgarian border and Constantinople had been captured easily on the sixth day of the war. Many despaired and wrote to the government to inform them that they should immediately begin exploring diplomatic solutions to end the war as quickly as possible, as they felt the Ottoman army was unlikely to bring victory. And that's where I'll leave things today. For the first week or so, the Bulgarians have made excellent gains, but the Ottomans have been given some time to breathe in Thrace and have prepared better defensive lines to protect Constantinople. Overall, the morale of the Balkan armies is high, they're making gains everywhere, but the question is, will it be enough? Next time, I'll cover that first early days of the war in Macedonia, the Rotopi, and on other fronts, and kind of catch up to what I just covered in the Thracian front, and then after that we'll continue with the later stages of the war. As always, don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, check out the podcast website for more information about everything, and I'll catch you in the next one.